0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. ...and from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Lucy, our
1: breakfast.
2: Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current affairs. Monday
0: to Friday, 7am till 8:30am. Only double.
3: Clap Clap your, your
1: hands. Hands. <laughs>
4: Good morning, good morning, good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan and Lauren. Hello. Uh, George and Ruby aren't here with us. They're on holidays, but they will be back real soon. In the meantime, we, you will be, um, listening to us as we mm-hmm. take you through the holidays or what's left of the holidays. Not very much. I've
0: got two hours left of my holidays.
4: Oh, so. I'm oh, sorry. That's okay. You know, but you had, I guess, a week of yeah, a rest? week of just reading, straight reading. Yes. Yeah. What have you been
0: reading? Um, well, on your recommendation, I read The Trauma Cleaner. How George infinite. bought it for me for Christmas. Yay. It was really intense, but really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so beautiful and so courageous. Yeah, she's an incredible woman. Mm. Um,
4: yeah, and just a whole bunch of books I got for Christmas. What are you reading? Um, well, I finished the trauma cleaner, and um, I, I'm still kind of re- trying to relax from that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much unwinding that you've got to do. There's a lot that happens to her, and but the way she comes, the way she still um, has, like, she still has a lot of compassion. She's still resilient. And you think, oh, my God, how are you so resilient with everything yep. that's happened to you? And so it, beautiful. It feels like such a learning curve where I totally. feel like you can pick up um, uh, ideas from her and just incorporate that into your own world. Um, but other than that, I, I'm looking for something to read. Maybe a fiction. One fiction. I like to read a fiction. Like and then one a and nonfiction. Fiction, like non-fiction. Mm-hmm. Just because you know your moods. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I want to... Um, uh, just sort of... Um, Can they dislodge? decompress almost, yeah. 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 Um, so, but speaking of courageous women, um, in this case, a courageous girl at Alternative News, which is, what time is Alternative News today? It's at eight o'clock, I think. Mm-hmm. So I will be um, discussing Ahad Tamimi, who is a young Palestinian activist who hasn't been receiving a lot of coverage from the media, uh, mainstream media, which is a shame. But um, I can't wait to uh, sort of share uh, my thoughts about what's been happening with her and just how amazing she is and how much we need to support her. Mm.
0: We actually have a lot of courageous women in our program mm. today. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, we have, first up, we'll be interviewing Sherlene Campbell and Carmel Simpson, um, who are from an Indigenous family violence Advocacy and Support Network up in the Northern Territory. Um, we'll also be playing a pre-recorded interview later in the show with Maxine Binaba-Clark, uh, who will be reflecting on the African contribution to Australia and reading her poem about Josephine Baker in Paris. Um, and we will also now be listening to a track by the fierce, fierce, fierce Napalm. Uh, enjoy. And that was Napalm, the Australian musician, with her track Crossfire, slash So Into You from her new record Needle Paw. Beautiful song to start your morning. Um, and start the year with a
2: song, or many songs, at the Singers' Festival at Abbotsford Convent, January 12 to 14. With Himena Abaka, Lamine Sonko, Beat Lehman, Steve Turner, and heaps more singers. Go to boite.com.au. The Boite is a 3CR supporter.
5: Lest we forget, join us to commemorate the 176th anniversary of the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tanaminaway and Mubohina, at the Tanaminaway and Mubohina Monument, corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne.
6: Do you know the names of the first men hang here in Melbourne town? Tanaminaway and Mubohina Join us, midday... Saturday the 25th
5: January 2018 and then walk with us to their last resting place in the Queen Victoria markets. The ceremony will be
6: broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR 3cr 3cr.org.au Far from their ancestral homes down in Van Diemen's land They knew their lives would be in vain if they didn't Take
0: stand. And we're back on 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast. It is 11 minutes past seven, and it's going to be a beautiful day. I think a top of like 21 today, so lovely. Um, and so now we'll hear an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with Charlene Campbell and Carmel Simpson, who are from the Tanganjera Women's Family Safety Group in the Northern Territory and they're going to be discussing the grassroots nature of the organisation, how they reach young people with their message, and their big plans for this year.
7: My name is Shirlene Campbell. I'm the co-coordinator for the Family Prevention, Tanganyika Women's Safety Group.
8: And my name is Carmel Simpson. I'm the co-coordinator with Shirlene for the Tanganyika Women's Family Safety Group. And um, we're part of the Tanganyika Family Violence Prevention Program.
0: Great. And what is the Tunganjara Family Violence Prevention Program? How did it get started? And yeah.
7: Well, basically it started um, about three years ago. Um, it was just talking about um, domestic violence on our TAN camp. Um, we thought we were just going to do six-week training. Um, that six-week training brought us up into, like, we need to get our heads into here and put our minds together and think about the future Mm
0: -hmm.
7: for our women and children on our town camp.
0: So what happened in the six-week training that made you realize that?
7: Um, It was just that every training we were doing, we actually realized that we're already living and doing and breathing those kind of stuff. So by doing that and understanding the training and it gave us an eye-opening, we decided to have a... Group of women as a core governance group, bring them together and start up a women's committee mm-hmm. um, yeah, and just to basically have that voice for all our women on our town camp.
0: yeah, so it's women from the community um and not external people coming in, but the people who live there every day and are part of the community. yeah, yeah, fantastic. Oh.
8: So Lauren, within um, Tung and Jira, so we have the Tung and Jira Family Violence Prevention Program, we have the Men's Behaviour Change Program. Mm. So they work on um, the No Violence Standards, under the No to Violence Standards, and they work with groups of men, so they do group work um, and assessments, and they also have a men's outreach and referral service through the courts um, as a diversion program. Um, so that was the start, but then when um, our manager came up, she said, well I can't work without the women. And so all of the representatives from the Women's Family Safety Group were elected officials on the Tunganjiri Executive Board. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were already leaders in their community and they were the women that started off in the core governance group. So they received the six-week training. Um, And from that, the women's group uh, decided that they also needed to have as part of this whole of community approach to the work that they're doing the Domestic Violence Specialist Children's Service who works with, with young people and they do a case management service and also training um, as well in schools with young people.
7: Yep, um, I've been successful. I've seen changes and like I always say, it's not going to happen overnight but mm. it takes baby steps and eventually things are going to change.
8: And I think as well the the big change that we always talk about is uh, that people are actually talking about family and domestic violence now out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um and Shirlene always says, you know, it's it's about opening the windows and the doors and to let the violence out. Um and to make sure that these conversations are happening so it's not a closed door, behind the scenes sort of thing that nobody um is aware of or nobody talks about. Um it's out in the open and um and with that you might be seeing more um reports being made but that usually is more of that incre- increase in awareness about the issues
0: mm, that's such a yeah, beautiful metaphor always, oh sorry like
8: i've always say violence is
7: not racism. i mean we need to get it out in the open it's not a shame job thing it needs to be stopped and talked about um for me growing up in central australia i felt that central australia is basically hit hard with um, family and domestic violence mm. especially with our women and children um, yeah like I said me growing up I thought well things going to be, things have to change we don't need our kids knowing that family and domestic violence is normalised because it's not
8: yeah. and the real catalyst as well um, for this group getting started um, and if Shirlene's happy to share this story um, is there were some um, some deaths from the town camp um, and one being Shirlene's auntie as well mm-hmm. um, and that really got all of the women in the women's family safety group um, mobilized and um, and really keen to, to see changes and to, to hopefully um, avoid something like that happening again.
0: Sherlene, mm. I'm really sorry to hear that that must have been very difficult.
8: Yeah it is difficult
7: but like I said, we need to get it out in the open so we didn't have no more of hurting of our women and children.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I've seen uh, on your your Twitter and Facebook some photos of the marches that you have with all of the women in the community, and it seems like you've got some interstate guests as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit about those?
7: Um, about our march? Yeah, it was all about um, visibility for our women. Um, Having that march was a successful, uh, we've had like just over 300 um, people attending. and There were people from interstate and that was sort of mind blowing for our women because no one ever used to listen to us and having that march on that day and everyone coming up and asking us, you know, who we are, where we come from, what we do. It was good for us to share our stories with them and let them
8: know that, you know, we're actually standing up and this, this is the time that needs to be changed. Yeah. And that real energy as well from the march, everybody, you know, family and domestic violence isn't an easy thing to talk about, but um, the energy and the enthusiasm and that real hopefulness was what um, people talked about from that day, that the march was, that really brought people together um, in a real hopeful atmosphere. And from the march, so much has happened since then for the Tunganjira Women's Group, Um with uh, the memorial garden. So we've got a reflective garden for, for um, women and children and um, and others who have been affected by family violence that has come from um, that march. The police have gifted the space to the women's group to create a design for that. Um, and also the, the sit-down in, in Canberra at Parliament House in March next year, which our GoFundMe campaign um, is geared towards is to get Aboriginal women to Parliament House to talk to the leaders there. Um, so all of this has come from that momentum of the march, which is really, really exciting for everybody.
0: Yeah, it's so powerful. And you can see that in the photos, that energy and that what everybody was feeling that day. It's really beautiful. Um, on, the, on the Parliament House visit, um, are you able to talk a little bit to what you're hoping to achieve when you're in Canberra?
7: Yeah, <coughs> well, we want to achieve, or we really wanted to go up to Canberra, sit down and pay respect to all our women and children that are affected by family and domestic violence and just have that maybe a minute silence to reflect on people who we, we could remember and lost in our in our memories. And wanting to go up to Canberra also to get the government, Malcolm Turnbull, and uh, Bill Shorten to listen to us because really they have to listen to us um, our women because we have the solutions and we know what to do and how to deal with our women and children and not just our women and children but our men as well because we do have men standing up as well against family and domestic violence
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
7: so
8: yeah the message is um, to listen to us um, stand with us and support us
0: Yeah. so let us tell you what we need rather than you tell us what we need
8: yeah Yeah. so really coming from that grassroots again um, and not that top-down approach and you know in terms of the support as well um, most services within the DV sector within the Northern Territory and I'm assuming around Australia you know their funding is 12 months if they're lucky they get it renewed but there's always that uncertainty and to be able to have real um, long-term sustainable changes we all know that um, that you need to have that that certainty of how you can grow those those programs and um, those um, those solutions mm. uh, and really yeah continue on that work because like Shirlene said before it 's not going to happen overnight, um, you need to have that long term outlook to be able to to affect that change
0: absolutely and so when you 've talked about um, on your website that cultural and societal change is required in particular to change family violence in your community. What specific kind of changes are you talking about?
8: Um, well, when we talk about the Tunganjira Family Violence Prevention Program working across the whole of community, so we're working with men, working with women, and working with young people. Um, so working across that whole of community to make that change is really, really important. Um, and when we're talking about cultural and society, societal change, Um, we know that the statistics for Aboriginal women are much higher, and especially in rural and more remote areas, but we also know that um, it's an epidemic across the world. So one in three is the stats for women um, who experience violence within their life. Um, And so it's that broader um, change across all of society and Australia-wide that needs to to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those things are working in that primary prevention and early intervention space. Um and we're really talking about the need to get to that space of equality um, between the genders. Um, so it's that real um, focus on that whole of society thing. and Shirley will often say um, that we're not we're not just talking about Aboriginal women here, we're also here to support women from all over the world within australia and and to internationally um, to combat family and domestic violence because it is such a um, a gendered thing for, mm-hmm. for women and so um, yeah such a, a one-sided um, issue when it comes to um, to women's experience of family and domestic violence.
0: Yeah absolutely and Charlene is there anything that you wanted to add to that that you feel um, yeah in addition to what Carmel said?
7: Yeah, um, it's just every time I wipe up, open up my Twitter or my Facebook page, there's always something about a woman, you know, that's been either sexually assaulted or um, either been through family and domestic violence, and it just cuts me and it just builds up myself, my, my my own momentum that, yes, things need to be changed, and I'm already doing it, but things need to be more of a like a combat. And by having our women together, it, we can easily tackle it and just have it in one go and just, yeah, go from there.
0: Yeah, strength in numbers. Yep. Yep. Um, and I'm interested in um, why you've chosen to focus on the communication with young people as well and what sort of form that takes.
7: It's really um, getting to a young mob, starting at an early age, you know, learning about the early intervention and stuff around um, family and domestic violence and educating them how to keep safe and knowing that, you know, they're police at first hand and also family members or a close friend.
8: Yeah, and they really, they work within um, that 12 to 17 age range um, and, and they do really interactive, really specifically youth targeted uh, training. So, for example, one of their training sessions, they'll look at the relationship between um, pop icons. So they'll look at um, the domestic violence situation that happened between um, Rihanna and Chris Brown mm. um, and they will look at at the steps that happened throughout that and they'll look at where at which point there could have been a change in behavior and obviously they said at any point he could have stopped what he was doing to change that but they really are looking at those gender stereotypes and gender roles um, within that training um, and really trying to, to question um, sometimes those rigid thoughts that, that we have even unaware of those things that society puts in in its place for, um, for the roles of women and the roles of men. So trying to challenge those, having some critical thinking for those young people and for them to realise that they don't have to um, accept that a man has to be a strong man and a woman has to submit um, and to really make sure that there's more equitable relationships, hopefully, that they're going into when they decide to, to go into those relationships in the future. And the kids just love Sherlene. She's got her own um, teenage sons, and so Sherlene will go to to the school sessions. And if you don't go with Sherlene, it's yeah, it's not going to be that effective. Oh, no. She <laughs> you knows how to talk to, to those young young people, um, and they really respect her and look up to her as a role model and um, and somebody that they can they can aspire to as well so it's really really wonderful and That's it's fantastic. really
7: me using my own experience as well growing up and putting that in you know using it as, as an educational towards other kids as well being yeah. a mentor yeah like Carmel said I love being a leader and want to share that with others and make them become leaders as well
0: yeah um Is there anything else that you wanted to add about the program or about the work that you're doing up there? Or um, you're more than welcome to plug your GoFundMe, if you like.
7: Yeah, Yeah, no, we'd love you to share the GoFundMe page and um, spread the word about our Facebook page as well. So we want to collect as many friends as we can, Mm -hmm. especially our
8: females. Yeah. For sure. Um, So if anybody is searching for the GoFundMe page, um, it's Tanganjira, which is P-A-N-G-E-N. T-Y-E-R-E, even just to have a look, um, see Sherlene's video, um, look at what it's asking, um, going to be asking the Australian government, and the whole idea with the GoFundMe campaign is to be able to get Aboriginal women from Central Australia, which is very expensive to get from, um, to Canberra to have that access to our nation's leaders, um, and to extend it out to other Aboriginal women within the Territory, and hopefully um, nationally as well, so that you know there are a lot of Aboriginal women generally donating their time um, and not being paid, and they're doing this because they really believe in this work, um, and we really want to be able to get get them down to Canberra as well to have that visibility. Um, and so you know the more visibility there is, um, the harder it is for for people to ignore um, ignore the voices. So we're really excited. We want to
7: link arms
8: with other people, other
7: women, um, other organisations who are willing to tackle family and domestic violence. Yeah, just linking arms together and taking it up to Canberra.
0: And that was Shirlene Campbell and Carmel Simpson from Tanganjira Women's Family Safety Group talking about their organization and their plans for 2018. And we've put a link up on our Tuesday Breakfast Facebook page so that you can contribute to their GoFundMe and follow their journey to Canberra and support them in that.
8: Join us to mark 100 years since the serenading of Adela Pankhurst Imprisoned at Pentridge for her anti-war activities Serenading Adela, a street opera, recreates the summer night When hundreds of supporters sang socialist songs and cooed over the prison walls Come along to Pentridge on Sunday the 7th of January Or catch our December preview It's all free For details, search Serenading Adela or email serenadingadella at gmail.com
2: Three C R support.
4: Good morning. If you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan and Lauren, um at eight fifty five AM on your dial. The time is seven I think seven twenty a. the weather. What's the weather? I should have checked. Double check that Lauren is checking that for us. 18.1. 18.1. I love that you added the point one because, girl, that makes a huge difference. Okay, so now we're going to be listening to a seg- uh, program from Over the Wall. Over the Wall is a program um, that... Uh, airs on Monday Breakfast. Monday Breakfast are currently on holidays. But it's, uh, it's affiliated with Monday Breakfast. Um, they will be back January 15th. So Over the Wall looks at, um, issues that are, that are affecting the welfare system. Um, and this interview, uh, looks at the 2017 federal budget to cut welfare eligibility to students studying TAFE courses.
5: The first item to discuss today is an item in the 2017 federal budget to cut welfare eligibility to students studying TAFE courses. The federal government continues to chip away at the social safety net relentlessly. This time it's a carefully executed plan to cease welfare income for students who study a TAFE course the government doesn't approve of. In 2016, the Turnbull Government axed by 56 per cent the number of TAFE courses eligible for VET Fee Help, which is a student fee loan upfront that also included reduced fees for people on welfare and a low income. The 2017 Federal Budget intends to also cut income assistance, things like Youth Allowance, AusStudy and AbStudy for students who take on a VET course that's not approved on this study list by the Federal Government.
6: So, to sum up, listeners. Step 1, 2016 by the Government, get rid of more than half of the TAFE areas eligible for Government support with a bias particularly against the arts. Step 2, 2017, if people still choose to study a delisted course, such as arts or journalism, then they lose their welfare payments. The budget measure is still to pass through Parliament, but it is due to start next year. The government said it would only apply to new students and would save the public purse $182 million over five years. The background to this story is the rotting of the TAFE system by
5: dodgy registered training organisations, RTOs. A 2015 Senate review of the TAFE system revealed students signed up for courses without due consideration and review of their abilities by RTOs. A phone call inquiry about studying could quickly lead to an enrolment in the same phone call. Under this deregulated system, private training colleges were also free to set their own fees for courses.
6: Modelling by the Grattan Institute, Estimates 40% of those loans will never be repaid. The opinion of Over the Wall is that this was a stuff up by governments to provide oversight after deregulating the TAFE system. Dodgy operators exploited a TAFE system that hadn't been set up properly by government in the first place. Soon, in 2018, students are set to cop welfare cuts and reduction of TAFE options due to government mismanagement. Citizens are losing their eligibility for income support due to the ineptitude of political oversight after deregulation. To follow along with this argument, listeners, uh, here's a few quotes from a recent edition of The Hack. It's going to really restrict students' ability to choose their preferred career path, said Mark Matthews, the managing director of Sydney Theatre School. It means only the wealthy and well off can afford to train in a career in the arts. Also in the hack,
5: Green Senator Rachel Seaward said the poorest students who don't have family support to study will be the hardest hit. The government says it either wants young people to be working or studying, yet they won't provide the supports for people to do so, she
6: said. Federal TAFE secretary of the Australian Education Union Pat Forward has labelled the proposals Orwellian. The decision of scrap payments for VET students is absolutely social engineering, she said. It is an attempt to channel them into courses that the government has approved based on areas of skills shortages. Rod Cam from the Australian
5: Council of Private Education and Training said when interviewed in the Hack, We're creating a perverse incentive for students to go to university rather than making sure vocational education is a legitimate choice. While it's too early to tell if people are leaving the VET sector in favour of universities, Rod says there's definitely been a massive slump in the number of students enrolling in the sector since the government announced its course eligibility criteria. Rod Cam continued to say, at the diploma and advanced diploma level, it's almost unprecedented how much enrolments have reduced. For the second part of today's program, listeners, Over the Wall is going to focus on the cashless welfare card. I myself recently only became aware of how widespread and how far along this cashless welfare card initiative is
6: by the federal government. More than two years ago, Senator Rachel Seward was already identifying in the Senate imminent problems that would appear down the track.
9: Please say no to this flawed approach, because it is punitive, it doesn't help people in the long term, same way as the Northern Territory intervention didn't help people in the long term. We still have the entrenched issues of disadvantage in the Northern Territory, same way that we'll continue to have those entrenched issues of disadvantage in the East Kimberley and in Sejuna into the long term until we start addressing those underlying causes. Of disadvantage, those systemic underlying causes that have clearly been identified.
5: That's Green Senator Rachel Seward in Question Time and on her webpage recently on the 14th of September 17, Rachel Seward has a headline, National MPs should go and talk to Newstart recipients in their communities rather than demand they be dumped on the cashless welfare card. Rachel says, These National MPs are sat in their offices, vilifying members of the community struggling to find work. They should get out there and talk to the people they are demonising and want to restrict how they manage their money. This card removes agency from people who are already on a payment that is far too low. When you remove someone's capacity to manage their budget, you make things worse for them. This is only going to serve as a barrier for people finding work. People on low incomes are some of the best money managers around. These MPs are
6: demonising their own constituents. It is appalling. These comments from Green Senator Seward from last month are in relation to the upcoming trials that are being expanded to Bundaberg and to Harvey Bay in Queensland. She also refers to the, the first two waves of assessment of how the regime's happened, which appeared in March and again in July this year. So these describe the situation in the towns that are already using it. For example, Seduna and Kalgoorlie. As trials? Yes, all of them are trials still. She goes on to say national MPs advocating for this should have a full read and properly assess the Wave 2 evaluation report into the card without their blinkers on. It has holes so big you could drive a truck through them. Now, the Wave 1 and Wave 2 Reports on what's been happening with the trials. On the cashless welfare card? Yes. And these are really the first reports we've seen. They are of such shoddy methodology that key sociologists around the country have pointed out that they're well, worthless. The, yeah, the question there that people have been asked to complete who have been on the trial, the
5: questions are kind of loaded.
6: That's right. The questions are voluntary, they are asked in an atmosphere in which the person responding has an advantage by appearing to be using less alcohol, using less drugs, or gambling less. And they don't seem to be paired up with any actual economic studies of what's happened in these towns, and that's particularly relevant when we see anecdotal evidence that in in some of these towns, quite obviously, the alcohol-related businesses are going to the wall.
4: If you're tuning in, you're listening to a segment from Over the Wall. Over the Wall is a Monday breakfast um, program. It normally airs on Monday breakfast, but Monday breakfast is on holidays, but they will be back January 15th. So you listen to an episode that looked at the federal budget's cut to welfare eligibility to students studying TAFE courses.
9: The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash Solidarity Defence Fund. That's patreo dot com forward slash Solidarity Defence Fund.
5: A 3CR supporter.
0: Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Now we're going to hear something else from Over the Wall, which is a Monday Breakfast-affiliated program, when they spoke to Green Senator Adam Bant to gain his insights into the cashless welfare card.
5: There are large regional areas in most states of Australia already being forced to use Centrelink cashless welfare cards. Examples of areas in trial phases 1, 2 and 3 include New England, New South Wales, the goldfields of WA, East Kimberley, Ceduna and South Australia and more areas in the Northern Territory and other states. The list of places is too long to state fully in this introduction. Just do a Facebook search for No Cashless Welfare Card Australia and No Welfare Card and you'll see heaps of local community members, local people vocally opposing the impact of cashless cards in their areas of Australia. The cashless cards quarantine 80% of welfare payments and the cards are rolled out universally to all recipients in a trial area so every person on welfare in that region must use this cashless welfare card. The justification by the government so far has been reduction of alcohol, drug usage and gambling in areas of Australia. The assumption by the government is to put everyone on welfare on cashless cards to stop social issues. The policy is just to put in this cashless card limit people's freedom and usage of money and not put into social services to actually try and help fix the problem.
9: I'm Adam Bant, the Greens member for Melbourne, and you're listening to Over the Wall on 3CR.
5: Adam, welcome to Over the Wall on 3CR, and I'd like to ask you questions today about the cashless welfare card that's impacting people around Australia. What is your party's policy on the card and the expansion of the trials?
9: The Greens oppose the cashless welfare card. We've been the only party in Parliament that has opposed it from the beginning. You don't improve people's situation by taking away their rights, full stop. This idea that if you're on low income in Australia, you somehow should have your right to spend your money controlled by the government But that kind of approach doesn't apply to rich people, and even if they do the wrong thing, is, I think, discriminatory and we oppose it.
5: It's
9: already been rolled
5: out in South Australia and Queensland and Northern Territory as trials. The card, the expansion of the
9: trials, we don't think has been
5: driven by
9: um, any evidence that suggests that these kind of approaches work. In fact, the international evidence suggests the opposite. It's all about a form of paternalism and It's clear that it's not just about government is targeting or has targeted remote and Indigenous communities, but they've expressed a desire to ultimately have this rolled out um, in other places across the country as well. So do
5: you think there's a long-term agenda to make this universal?
9: I think there's a long-term agenda to make it much more broad than it is at the moment and perhaps to make it universal. It's clear that the government is on a rampage of demonising people who receive welfare and They have said that they want it to be rolled out more broadly than it is at the moment and I do fear that that could mean that it ultimately becomes universal. Our government may say they've got no plans to do that and that may well be right but it's clear the government wants this to be expanded. They didn't just do it just to have a trial and to stop.
5: A lot of academics are also saying the questionnaire to welfare recipients on the card obscures the findings and methodology. For example, that there seems to be some encouragement for people to downplay their drug and alcohol use on the questionnaire. Will your party demand greater assessments of the trials with more extensive recourse to economic analysis and measurable outcomes?
9: One of the things we've been really concerned about is that the reviews of the card been largely anecdotal and even the reviews themselves acknowledge that and it's not necessarily based on good evidence about whether this is helping anyone or not and so I take a lot of the data that the government is relying on in these reviews with a very large pinch of salt but even with that qualification it's concerning that in the um, in the reviews themselves to the one in four people who are on the card were saying that they felt that it had made their lives worse, right? Even with all of those qualifications about potential push-polling and questioning and it not being very scientific, you've still got a sizeable proportion of people who are saying
5: this isn't in fact helping them. Yeah, because Malcolm Turnbull had his quite emotional statement in the parliament where he was saying, you know, look, a child with fetal alcohol syndrome in the face and using these examples, these individual examples, but there seems to be a predominant part of the population that isn't in the type of category that labelling as, as gamblers, as alcoholics and who need to be controlled, who often people on the lowest income are actually extremely good at managing their budget because they have to yeah. out of necessity. You have to be, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, a couple more questions. So some problems around the card include penalisation of welfare recipients who have not presented as, as subject to alcohol, drug or gambling the inability to use the cards outside of their own towns or outside FPOS-based businesses, and implementation costs that are variously judged as between 60 and 90% on top of their income support payments. Of these, do any draw your attention in particular, and will your party be pursuing the government on them?
9: Well, they're all of concern, but the fact that you're starting to restrict the freedom of movement of people means that, Already, if, you are, if you're receiving some form of welfare as your income, you don't really have much of a buffer to deal with unexpected circumstances. But if all of a sudden you've got to deal with someone close to you getting really sick or ill or dying, or you have to deal with some other form of emergency that might require you to have to go somewhere else... You 're faced with a double burden, you 're double whammy. Not only do you have that immediate thing in your life that you 've got to deal with, you' now got to deal with the fact that part of your income is being quarantined and you don 't have the flexibility to spend it as you want. So all of those are issues, but the fact that you 're starting to make it harder for people to deal with life 's emergencies, especially when it might involve them having to travel somewhere, really tells you this is about taking away people 's rights basically and making
5: it tougher for them to have control over their own lives. The Senate Committee on Expansion on the Cashless Cards trials has finished its submissions phase. Do you have any anecdotal insights into evidence heard and how the committee might find?
9: I know. Look, I think the committee will go through the process and come up with its findings in due course but i can say that there's a very big body of of expertise including people who've made submissions to the senate who would said hang on just be very careful about thinking that somehow the evidence backs up that this is working in fact a lot of the academic and the research literature
5: is backing up what people are saying on the ground namely it's not working for them And last question is, several municipal councils have rejected the expansion of the card into their towns, including Bundaberg and Harvey Bay in Queensland. While this council activism seems to be expanding, is it likely the government is likely to ride roughshod over the policy of these councils and introduce the card there anyway?
9: Uh, They may, but I'm really pleased by the approach that a lot of councils um are... Taking, I think the government wants the cooperation of the local council, and has certainly in the trial areas has been working closely with some of the local authorities. So, I think that the move from the councils might, I think, will make the federal government sort of take a step back and think twice. Um, So, I think that's a good thing.
5: Adam Bant, thank you very much for your time and over the world. Thanks
9: very much, pleasure to be on.
5: To sum up, listeners, that the vast majority of people on welfare are good money managers. They have to be to survive below the poverty line. This is a government that does not want to spend on helping people most in need. Rather, it is a government that prefers tax cuts to huge corporations. Over the Wall also speculates if the trial phases of the cashless card are part of a long-term government agenda to make cashless cards universal to all welfare recipients in all parts of Australia. What are the possible results of a universal cashless card? One woman in South Australia was placed on the cashless card in her community trial when she reached adulthood. She nominated rental payments to be deducted from her cashless card. Three months passed and a system error caused no rental payments to be made and she received an eviction notice. This is a public-
0: That was Monday Breakfast's affiliate program, Over the Wall, speaking with Green Senator Adam Bant, gaining his insights about the cashless welfare card. And now we're going to hear a song by the Sydney artist Okenyo, and it's called Mirage. beautiful Akenyo with her song Mirage.
7: you got to remember NAIDOC's a special day for us, fellas, as a reminder who we are.
6: Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am... MADOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present.
8: MADOC
0: means a lot to me, for my family and my people.
9: You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au
7: forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison
4: broadcasts. Happy Happy MADOC! Spoken Word Australia is a grassroots program produced in the studios of 3CR for the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation connecting you to poetry and performance. Award winning poet and author Maxine Beniba-Clark reflects on the African contribution to Australia and reads her poem about Josephine Baker.
6: Spoken Word Australia, connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance.
3: Maxine Beneba-Clark has been making quite an impression around Australia and around the world. A West Indian Australian writer and slam poet whose collection of short stories Foreign Soil won the Victorian Premier's Unpublished Manuscript Award in 2013 and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize in 2015. I think it's time for us to hear some actual... Poetry by you, Maxine. So, mm-hmm. what can you do for us?
10: <laughs> okay, um, this piece is called Banane Femme and it's about the African American French dance hall legend Josephine Baker, um, who was amazing. She was the most photographed woman of her time. Josephine, qu'est-ce que c'est? Josephine, écoutez-vous.
2: Josephine, pardon. Ah, Benin fin, hey, hey, the brown girl peeked out of the chorus din, a bow-legged wink, and she wiggled her thing, Petit Benin Femme, Brune Josephine, ah, but I bet St. Louis felt like lives ago, Papa time in the big house, in a washerwoman's daughter's clothes, Papa Tambor, Vaudeville her blacks and louis, that was lives ago, Papa Tambor, Vaudiville, those blood streets then a quiet like white rage. Hey, Madame Josephine, petit ben and femme, on the Paris stage. Hey, hey, Josephine, mon idol, Josephine, sachez, Josephine, mon idol, elle est venue à la vie. And the party stage, sachet.
3: Maxine Clark, I know that you have uh, a strong interest in, in the African experience, the, as- uh, the African diaspora and, and the way in which the descendants of Africans are scattered throughout the New World. Can you describe or outline your interest in that?
10: I guess um, as a writer, I'm interested in providing a voice for African descendants in the New World, and by the New World, I guess I mean the West... <laughs> I guess um, in Australia, with the increase in African migration over the last 10, 15 years, there are a lot of new voices out there that I feel need to be heard and I guess I try to provide my voice um, as a funnel for those people and I'm also interested I guess in finding a lot of more people writing from that kind of a perspective
3: Yes, um, and you mentioned that uh, this is a, a significant part of Australian migration. The the actual migration in Australia uh, of African people actually is from the continent of Africa, like especially the, the Horn of Africa, East Africa and that leads me to, to ask whether you feel that the African experience has been markedly different in, in different parts of the world, depending on where, they've en- where African people have, have ended up, like whether it's in the North America or South America or or in Australia?
10: Well, I guess I think there are a lot of parallels, no matter where um, African descendants end up. I guess the primary thing is that, you know, in... in um, South America, for example, or in the West Indies, obviously there's a long history of, um, you know, the, the local inhabitants being eradicated and the abolition of slavery and independence and things like that. So there has been, I guess, more of a transition than people for people who are coming directly from the continent to the United States or to the UK or to Australia from all different classes. Um, yeah,
3: yeah, that's right. That was the voice of
6: Maxine Beniba Clark. You have been listening to Spoken Word Australia, a grassroots program produced in the studios of 3CR for the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, connecting you to poetry and performance.
7: Hi, my name's Sarah.
0: I love coming here because they offer vegan food.
5: Hi, my name is Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome, and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 la,
6: la, la, Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
4: If you're tuning in, you are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on your 8:55 a.m. dial. Um, with myself, Ayan, and uh, Lawrence. Sorry, <laughs> what happened? It's early in the morning, so forgive me. Um, right now, it's that time of the morning where we look at uh, what's happening around the world, and we um, share stories that aren't covered ma- that aren't covered by the mainstream media. So, one of these stories that I'm going to start off with is Ahadi Tamimi. Um, who is Ahadi Tamimi. She's a 16-year-old Palestinian activist who has stood up to the Israeli army a number of times. She was also recently detained when she slapped a soldier in the face. Her father, Basimi, claims that his daughter was trying to stop the Israeli soldiers from entering her cousin's house illegally. So prior to Ahidi's ar- arrest, her cousin, Mohammed, was hit point-blank in the face with Israeli-fired rubber bullets. They had been protesting Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Some information about the rubber bullets to put, you know, the severity of the, um, uh, I guess, action into perspective. Um, So this is a direct passage that I'm going to read from an Al Jazeera article called Palestinian teen in coma after shot with rubber bullet it's by jeseline ashley rubber bullets are widely deployed by israeli security forces as a crowd control weapon in the occupied west bank prompting an outcry from human rights groups and activists who say they are too lethal to be used to break up protests their usage was banned in Israel and the city of Jerusalem more than a decade ago following an investigation into the killings of at least 12 Palestinian citizens of Israel in 2000. The Israeli security forces then began using sponge-tipped or plastic bullet in, Israeli and in Israel and Jerusalem while continuing using rubber bullets in the occupied West Bank. However, both rubber and plastic bullets have been causing serious injuries and even deaths. The Defence for Children International Palestine, DCIP for short, is a human rights group, said a 15-year-old Palestinian boy was killed in December last year by a rubber bullet north of Ramallah. Five months earlier, a 10-year-old boy died from a sponge-tipped bullet in the town of Ram, the group said. So these these weapons that they're using aren't harmless or aren't even a safer option um, to the, I guess, bullets, guns and other things like drones that they've used. Um, so this is not Ahidee, uh, Tamimi's first act of resistance in 2015. She tried to stop an Israeli soldier who was attempting to arrest her 14-year-old brother. There are also videos that you can find on the internet um, of her protesting in her village of Nebi Salah against the expansion of the settlement of Halamish. So it's a cent- settlement that's nearby um, to where Ahidi lives and it's a settlement on private Palestinian land. Um, she's also won the Handala Courage Award in Turkey so this is a 2013 Reuters article that looked at a UNICEF report in 2013 called Children in Israeli Military Detention. So this report found that 700 Palestinian children between the age of 12 to 17 were detained and interrogated by Israeli military police and security. So um, just some updates with what's happened with Ahidi. Um, she... Also, Ahidi's mother, sorry, I forgot to add, um, Nariman Tamimi and her cousin, um, Nurmani, um, were also arrested. Uh, Ahidi's mother, who was filming, who had filmed the incident of the, um, the protest, um, Ahidi's protest against the army, um, illegally entering her cousin's house. So the mother recorded it, and when her daughter was arrested, the mother um, went to go see, you know, went to go support her daughter and to keep her company because um, Ahidi is under 18 and she needs, um, I guess, adult supervision. Um, so the mother was arrested as well. She's been arrested, um, I guess, for inciting or, um, I guess, promoting what her daughter did. Um, that's the argument. Um, so what's happened now is that Ahidi's mother... Um, has been charged with incitement and assault. Um, Ahidi herself faces 12 charges including aggravated assault and throwing stones Uh, on Sunday the Sunday that went past and Noor Tamimi, who is Ahidi's cousin was charged with assault and disturbing soldiers from carrying out their duties. Um, So that's been the update. Um, It's interesting to know me and Lauren were talking about um why maybe um Tamimi hasn't received uh, Heidi hasn't received the same attention like someone like Malala did, mm-hmm. right? And um we were just thinking trying to think of what that could be and um you made some interesting point. Um yeah, just I mean I guess what we were talking about were the
0: um wider political reasons as to why Um, humanizing Palestinian children or speaking out against the Israeli occupation um, would not be in the Western mainstream media's personal interests. Um, And I suppose with Malala, you know, she was attacked by um, Islamic extremists, Mm -hmm. which obviously fits in with the West's narrative about um, that we should be protecting people from these Islamic extremists, but um, the West can't put forward the narrative that we should be protecting people from Israeli extremists because um, ostensibly we support them. Absolutely.
4: So, yeah. And I guess is, it's because it's state-sanctioned violence. Absolutely. Yes. And that's always justified. And it's interesting how Ahidi has been... Um, uh, she, the way she's been described in, in the media. So we're talking about a young 16-year-old girl whose family has been oppressed, whose country has been under, um, I guess, occupation. Mm-hmm. No, I guess it's occupation for sure. Um, and so all, with all that happening in the background, her slap, um, in comparison drop to... Drop in the ocean. Is dro- yeah. yeah, to drop in the ocean. And, and this is after she had seen her cousin being attacked. Mm. And, you know, this is a traumatized girl. And um, I guess her biggest crime is putting, I guess, further spotlight on what's happening um, with the Palestinians. Um, and,
0: uh, yeah, and, and she has a similar activist background to Malala and a mm. similar history of standing up for her community and for women and um all of that sort of mm. thing so it's a real shame that um that she's not being talked about more
4: mm, yeah it, it, it's, it's a huge shame and um because you know where are the hashtags you know where are mm. all these and but you, you know you think about the fact that she's going up against settler like a, a settler nation and mm. It makes sense Australia wouldn't be talking about it considering that they're a, s- a settler nation themselves. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah, so. That's something to look out for. Her name is Ahidi, spelt A-H-E-D-I, Tamimi, T-A-M-I-M-I. So um, have a look at Twitter because that's where um, I've been receiving a lot of my information from. And also um, they've been linking me to articles. Yeah. Al Jazeera is doing an amazing work Her on that.
0: surprisingly publishing um Updates as well, yeah. which I was shocked about, but I'm glad to see. Yeah, um, so
4: that's yeah. something to look forward to hmm. or look out for, sorry. <laughs> um,
0: and maybe in that same vein of uh, of the way that the West reports happenings in the Middle East, um, just quickly we'll go to Iran now where there are um, large-scale protests happening across the country. Um, largely in response to the high cost of living um, in Iran due to the economic sanctions mm. uh, put in place by Western governments because of uranium enrichment programs. Um, so the rallies have started or started in late December and um, state television in Iran has reported that 10 people have now been killed as a result. Mm. Um, So that's something that I haven't seen a whole lot of news about, but it's certainly um, pretty serious and Mm. pretty indicative of what happens if you speak out against the Iranian government in Iran and you are Iranian. Mm. Um, And the other thing we quickly wanted to talk about was there's some really interesting discussion at the moment on Twitter about the idea of quotas, specifically gender quotas. Um, It's important to note that um, nobody is talking about racial or ethnicity diversity quotas. So mm. I think we should flag that from the outset because, um, if the idea of quotas is to get business communities looking more like mainstream Australia, um, well, mainstream Australia is multicultural as hell. So, mm, exactly. um, <laughs> but anyway, so the, uh, the gender quotas, um, Jane Caro, who is an author and, um, And a feminist commentator, sparked a conversation on Twitter about young women being more hesitant about implementing quotas than older women. Um, And yeah, we've been chatting a little bit about why that might be. But Mm. just for context, um, late last year, the uh, Australian business lobby foreshadowed that this year, they would probably be putting pressure on the Australian government to implement quotas on boards. And in terms of Um, company directors and that sort of thing. So currently um, the aim is to have about 30% women Mm -hmm. representation and 70% men, Um, but they are thinking that that's actually just not doing very much at all um, because there are still 14 boards without any women in our top 100 companies and only eight female CEOs in total in the ASX 200. Mm. Um, and those are only the large scale companies. Apparently it gets worse the further down size-wise you go. Yeah. Um, so the business lobby is talking about mandating quotas, maybe 30%, maybe up to 40%. And so there's obviously, you know, this is a very fraught issue. Um, everybody has an opinion uh, and generally speaking it seems like those opinions are informed by personal experience but so i thought um, it would be interesting to note that um, of course scandinavia have tried this and um, and their results are really interesting so in norway they had a similar sort of debate with a lot of resistance against quotas but according to an oecd economic survey Once they formally implemented quotas, the government got involved and pulled together this big database full of qualified female candidates, introduced training programs and sort of assisted with the recruitment and placement of these women in these roles to ensure that the companies met their quotas and that women were placed in areas where their experience and education was suitable and all of that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and it turns out that on average, the female board members in Norway had higher educational and experiential qualifications than their male colleagues. And it seems that it's worked brilliantly. Mm. And they have, they're on track to reach their targets of at least 40% of women on boards in publicly listed companies, which is fantastic. So um, I thought it would be good to just add that in because that shows that, um, whether or not people think that they're a good idea, it can work. Mm -hmm. What do you think about
4: quotas? Quotas are really important. Um, I think because I had a quick Google search on um, like the gender disparities and and, and all that, and it was all very corporate, so any discussion about uh, gender quotas was always in the corporate arena, you know? Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about you know my sister my cousins my mom who don't work in that environment you know what protections are out there and and often um i think there should be discussion about gender pay Mm -hmm. um but i always think that the conversation isn't as isn't as wide or isn't as inclusive as it should be totally um, so I'm trying. I've got an article open. Um, it's an article by bell hooks, mm. and she looks at Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl um, Sandberg. Let me have oh, a look. Hashtag think, Lean In. Yeah, hashtag Lean In. So she, there's a book that she wrote called Lean In, and she talks about just the things that she did and how she um, got where she is. and And the article is interesting because bell hooks, who's a feminist um, theorist, she looks at why she has been successful and how this message isn't really one of the isn't really um, the type of message that we should be promoting, or if we do promote it, we should look at we should look at it um, in a nuanced way. And she talks about, um, you know, um, how. Uh, Sandberg doesn't offer a broader definition of um, feminism, that it's simply, the way she describes it, it's simply between the sexes, so women against men, as opposed to um, a movement that is about ending sexism, ending sexist exploitation and oppression. Um, So yes, so it's an interesting article, it's called Lean In, and um, is it called Lean In? Sorry, hang on a sec, it's, yes, it's called Dig Deep. Beyond Lean In it's from the Feminist Wire and I will bookmark this article and um, put it up so people can have a look and just look at the type of feminism that's promoted you know the, Mm. the the feminism that's very individual that's very much about um working within the system as opposed to making sure the rest of your sisters yeah. you know, are included as well. And that's
0: interesting. It's coming out in the debate that a lot of people are saying quotas are important, mm. but you can't just put this quota on companies that exist within a patriarchal power structure. What needs to happen mm. is that there are equal women on in HR and hiring yeah. and in... Organizing company structures so mm. that, for example, there is paid parental leave, but there are also flexible working hours for mothers who are raising their children right. and all of those sorts of things, because you can't just, Cheryl, if Sheryl Sandberg is the example, mm. one woman in a male power structure does not change the structure sufficiently that more women could come in. It just means that she happened to get in there. So that's, Exactly. Yeah. So I think that will be an interesting thing to come out when the discussion of quotas really Gets going, um, how are we going to be able to restructure or mm. rework yeah. the structures that we live within? Mm.
4: And quotas, as you said, shouldn't just be about numbers, it should also be about um, making it uh, what's the word I'm looking for? E- not equal, equitable, equitable. Mm-hmm. So making sure that, you know, if women are pregnant, that the um, Pay leave is that that, what is that yeah paid maternal leave yeah that that should be fair and that there should also be there was uh, what's it called the family violence um, family violence leave yeah the family violence leave so when we do look at quotas it should be a quota that includes all these um totally
0: like with sex discrimination law you know that's a really good example of a law coming in and just like shaking up the status quo, just saying Mm. like there is so much inherent bias here and there are so many microaggressions and power structures that are just, we just can't keep being aspirational. We have to come in and create this legislation that is just going to knock this on its head. Mm. And so when the sex discrimination law came in or pregnancy discrimination or any of those things, it's all of those other things surrounding it that had to change to support this new change in the law. And now we see a workplace where when a woman says, I'm pregnant, the boss cannot turn around and say, well, you're fired. And so those things are really important because mm. then she also has paid maternity leave and her job back when she's finished raising the child and mm. all of that sort of thing.
4: Whew. Yeah. Yeah. It's a heavy <laughs> issue and it's an issue that um, hopefully we can bring in an expert. I don't know what kind of expert, but someone that's, yes. that's actually studied the field and has done a lot of work in the field who could yes. perhaps, you know, put it, not put it into context, but can give us figures because it's 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 I'm not I'm I'm no researcher so
0: no but I think this is the kind of thing where it's important to and I think that's why that the Norway data was so arresting because mm. quotas are one of those things where you know and I don't want to be I don't want to sound like a broken record but so many of the people who don't like quotas mm. are um, cis white men mm. or are people who are too young to recognise the multiple subtle ways that discrimination in employment can take place. Right. Um, so these are people who haven't experienced that kind of subtle, less overt forms of discrimination. Yeah.
4: Um, so to cut through that with facts, I think can only be a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's not about merit, the, the, the discussion that, um, that's, that's been one of the, um, I guess, uh, counter arguments from, uh, from people who want to maintain the status quo, it's it's you know women should be um, put into into these positions yeah. based on merit, and that's completely well I think wrong because the assumption is that these women are being given like like not handouts but given yes. um like they're not deserving of the position Absolutely. rather than they're being intentionally ignored or being pushed out. That's the problem. Well, not even unconsciously not being.
0: But, you know, the Victorian Public Service um, started de-identifying resumes a couple of years ago. So when they would get job applications, they would mm. take out age, gender, sexuality, um, you know, anything that could, be, could construe bias. Mm. And I can't remember the exact figures, so I won't guess because that would be um, shocking radio <laughs> but basically the number of women who were hired for all positions particularly in the treasury which is where this started jumped like almost doubled apparently yeah. um, because the second the unconscious bias was removed it turned out oh my goodness these women actually do have merit
4: yeah these women do know what they're talking about who knew Exa- exactly and you know it's not it, it, i love that you mentioned bias because it's not I think people are always like, oh, you know, I don't hate women. I love women. I'm, you know, you know, I have a wife. I have a daughter. And sometimes you, you don't even realize you're doing yeah. it. It's just so, um, prevalent and something so insidious that you don't realize you're doing it. You just act upon it. Totally. So, and I guess people, I, you know, they're so, I guess they want to think of themselves as having authority over, um, who they are and how they feel, and then mm-hmm. realize, you know, brainwashing, conditioning. They've been conditioned to think this way. So it's, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person, it just means that you need to do work. Um, so now we're going to be listening to uh, Summer Nights by John Travolta and Olivia Newton John, just to, you know, continue this summer vibe.
2: Start the year with a song or many songs at the Singers Festival at Abbotsford Convent, January 12 to 14, with Himena Abaka, Lamine Sonko, Beat Lehman, Steve Turner, and heaps more singers. Go to boite.com.au. The Boite is a 3CR supporter.
4: If you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan and Lauren, my amazing co host, who is also um, an aspiring lawyer. I love to say that. I, oh. I love that I have a friend and a co host who is an aspiring Oh my god, eyeliner. can to make me cry? I just did this eyeliner. How dare you two thousand eighteen, we're all about positivity. Um yeah, so um, we had some amazing content today. Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke about Ahedi, um Tamimi, who is a 16-year-old uh, Palestinian activist. Um, we looked at some programs from Over the Wall. Over the Wall is um, a program that makes sense of what's happening with the welfare system and welfare policies, and how it affects us, affects young people, affects you know seniors, just everybody. And that program, Over the Wall, um, is Uh, alongside Monday breakfast Uh, Monday breakfast will be returning on January the 15th
0: and so now we are going to finish with a song um, a nice uplifting song to start off your potentially first day back at work if you're like me so this is called The Past Beast Inside Me Like a Second Heartbeat and it's by Earthboy featuring Sampa the Great and Orinco (laughs)